Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to the world's life sciences expertise. I'm very excited to welcome Jeremy Levin, chairman and CEO of Ovid Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Jeremy. Well, real pleasure being with you. Wonderful. So, Jeremy, to kick us off, we'd love to understand you know, the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Well, it's been lengthy, so let us stand still. <laughs> I started in the depths of apartheid in South Africa. I'm born in a time when segregation was the norm, racism was rampant, and my family fled that with me as a child going north through another country then called Rhodesia. We were typical refugees, but it led to a really deep understanding and belief that everything we do must be to help mankind be better. And that as we migrated north and eventually into Great Britain, where I finished my high school and went to Oxford and did my PhD in thermodynamics and DNA supercoiling and then to Cambridge to do my medicine, that never changed. Those formative years where the family fled, constantly looking for an environment of enriched life, an environment where you would be able to do the best you can and do the best you could, also required that you think about those around you. And remember, I was born only a few, less than a decade after the Holocaust in Europe. So we were infused with a sense of purpose and need to change the world for the better. Once I finished my medicine, I had a wonderful experience. I was at Cambridge. And I came across a very strange molecule. It was a molecule from a viper. And it was the first molecule ever to change hypertension. Discovered by Bristol Myers Squibb. I did one of the first clinical trials there in Cambridge. That clinical trial told me something very quickly. That is, every time you give a medicine, you change somebody's life. And the way I thought about it was, or the way it was brought to my attention was, a moment when I injected this experimental medicine, captopril, into the veins of an individual, and then to my absolute horror, watched their blood pressure go into their boots, and they very nearly demised. Changed my life. and knew that medicines were interesting, fascinating, really tricky to discover, exciting to discover, but boy, you had to watch out because they changed the life of that individual. And I formed a philosophy. The philosophy was that I have a covenant with every patient I treated. A few years later, I was a fellow doing a fellowship in Geneva, and a very remarkable man called Willie Gilbert came to Geneva to talk about biotechnologie, as they described it. It was a lot of fun, and how they were going to immediately have a drug within hours and days. And it was such fun to, so inspiring to hear and talk about it. I thought I'd better get on a plane, go and look what was happening in America. And gee whiz, that's exactly what I did. And so I started right at the bottom. I had an MD, PhD, Oxford, Cambridge. I decided the best way to learn about the industry was to take a very, very, very basic position in the company, not go back to my fellowships. Too exciting. So much innovation, so much fun happening at that time, the birth of the industry, and that I'd learn a lot. I'm happy to say that that arc was a lucky choice. <laughs> That art 
was more like a bow that basically shot me into America in 1987 at a moment when biotech was just getting born. And there were maybe a couple hundred companies, crazy companies, little companies, big companies were considered giant when they had 20 or 30 people. Really a, a remarkable era. So I decided that learning about a small company was the best thing I did. I joined a small company. Then I joined a larger company, Genzyme. And I met the most inspirational man I've ever met, Henry Tamir. Henry took me under his wing, made his CFO, Dave McLaughlin, bring some financial sense into my mind. I was all about science, innovation. Dave McLaughlin was all about money, balance sheet, cost. And he was a strict master, but a brilliant master. They made me do business development. I consolidated uh, genetic testing companies. They made me think about one thing all the time. And then that was Henry's maxim. Passion, 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 passion. Keep a passion for what you're doing, because if you don't, you might as well be going and selling cars. Not that I could imagine myself selling cars. I grew up a lot in that place. Despite my PhD and my MD, I learned a lot about business from those guys. And then they got me marketing, asked me to take a drug called Seridates to Israel, the heart of the disease that was there. What did I learn there? I learned about patients. I learned about how a medicine can affect profoundly and utterly a patient and that the patient group was critical. I also learned about pricing. Those of you who know pricing will remember, Henry never once wavered. He said, I've got a drug that makes value. You need to pay for it. Otherwise, I can't develop it. But he never raised that price. He knew it would change the people. And he built a huge business. So I was one of the two people, including Tommy Tierney, who introduced Saturdays to Israel, which was fascinating. Taught me a lot. Quickly thereafter, I was involved with helping fund a company called Focus Technologies. And then from there, I mean, bravely, perhaps madly, perhaps insanely, learned what it meant to take a company public, was swept up into Novartis, where Mark Fishman with Dan Vassella decided to put the NECO building into a different kind of sweet production. It wasn't sweets. It was indeed medicines. Mark needed a sparring partner. Not that you could ever be a sparring partner with Mark. Dan wanted somebody who maybe thought they could think about business and business development, and I was responsible. I think I was the third employee in Nibba. Mark, his assistant, marvelous lady, and myself. And I grew up a lot there, did many, many, many transactions, helped build the pipeline. And then when it came time for them to want me to move elsewhere in the world, I decided that my children were just as important as what I was doing, and I wanted to stay close to them. So I joined Bristol-Myers Squibb. At that stage, I'd done hundreds of transactions. Elliot Siegel asked me to join. Then Bristol was in terrible trouble. Bristol had its CEO been dismissed, its general counsel dismissed. The head of its commercial was under indictment. Terrible trouble. But it had some incredible things. Remember that capture pearl? came from Bristol. Yeah. I knew yeah. Bristol. It also had developed Taxol. It had great people inside it. The question was, could you turn around this very remarkable company? Could you help turn it around as part of a team? That was such a lot of fun. Jim Cornelius, an inspired leader, brought us all together and basically said, look, you got to fix this pipeline. You got to show a trajectory. Otherwise, we'll have to sell the company. We didn't say that aloud. That was the implication. We knew that. And focusing on what was strong in Bristol, cancer, I built a thing called the String of Pearls, 
which was a set of transactions designed to take advantage of what are the best science that existed today. Such a lot of fun. And I had great people to work with. Brian Daniels, you had Ella, terrific. Tony Hooper, all people who became iconic in their time. Just fantastic people. Sandy Leung, GC. Even the GC was all committed. Lombardo Andreotti. They wanted to do something. They didn't want this company to be sold, and neither did I. So we looked for science to save us. And science did, because out there was a transaction with Medarex. That transaction was inspired, was looking at CTLA-4, thinking about how could you harness the immune system to attack a cancer. A lot of skepticism. We're talking about 2006, 7, 8. Everybody betting that this would never work. Companies like Pfizer abandoning their programs. Merck shelving theirs. No other companies in immuno-oncology except Medarex and owner. But I couldn't persuade everybody to do the transactions. I did a series of transactions just to show them that we could get confidence that we would do it. We did 17 transactions. Near the end of those was Medrex, because I became convinced after talking to Brian Daniels and Mills Lonsberg that this was a revolution in the making. If we were right, cancer would be conquered. That was the assumption. But you had to bring everybody to the point where they knew they were willing to do it willing to take a chance, willing to innovate in a company that was struggling. Bristol was struggling. Remember, the courts were there. Remember, because under the CIA, tough moment for that company. But they were brave, very brave. And particularly Jim Cornelius was brave. So he took a chance on a guy <laughs> out of Africa, out of Europe, out of Oxford and Cambridge. And they believed me. And we bought Medrex. You should know that in 2009, there were approximately 10 trials in immuno-oncology Today, roughly half of the entire industry is focused on that area because Bristol took a chance. They took a chance on me. And this I found, that was a wonderful thing. And I was having a lovely time. And along comes another company called Teva. The chairman calls up and says he wants to merge with Bristol. I don't know why I got the job, but I got the job to assess this. We didn't buy Teva, thank heavens. But three months later, I got a call from somebody remarkable. Shimon Peres from Israel, who I'd known since a young man. And Shimon said, it's time for you to come and do your national service in Israel. So my wife and I thought about it. We love medicines. She knows I love medicines. Wanted to help millions. Knew that Teva had a wonderful, iconic background. Didn't know very much about all the problems that it was facing. Knew also that it was disliked by many people in the industry. But I thought I could stop that and make it liked. But more than that, I felt that we could deliver generics to millions of people around the world. And so after consulting with my very close friend, Chris Wiebacher, I asked him, how do you go and run a foreign company? What do you do? What are the things I should be doing? He generously gave me the time and to think through what are the things that I would do. And I was, I'm most grateful to Chris because he laid bare the problems, the topics, the change that would be required and how to affect those changes. And off I went, taking my wife, went flew to Israel, set up home. I think... The most remarkable thing about becoming CEO of Teva was I was probably the only guy to wear a tie in all of Israel, and that made everybody very suspicious of me. <laughs> Teva's experience was wonderful. I visited every manufacturing plant, I learned a lot about manufacturing, I visited tens of countries, I spoke in multiple languages, I speak five of them myself. I was able to deal with a company that I felt had great potential. Unfortunately, I disagreed with the board and felt that this would take time. And in 2014, I'd left. And one of the things I learned from that is that you can make change 
but you do need to do it progressively, thoughtfully, with great strategic intent, and you always rely on working with people with the greatest integrity. When I came back to the United States, I had a choice. Go and run another large pharmaceutical company, which was offered to me, or indeed, go back to what I love. Remember that moment with Capital The idea that you can take a chance, patient gives you faith, you do it, and you make the lives different. And that's what I thought. I'd been looking at neurology, and just like immunology, I could see the waves of technology beginning to rise. The tide was rising. No question that neurology was going to face over the next five, six, seven years. An extraordinary change, extraordinary change. So I founded Ovid, put my own money in, didn't ask a single venture capitalist, put my family's money in. We risked it. And we started this tiny company with the objective of focusing on rare diseases of the brain and with the idea that we could make a difference in people's lives fundamentally. And I believe we have, and I believe we'll continue to do so. That's the arc. In the meantime, what an unbelievable amount of incredibly intelligent people I've met along the way. And I formed a real philosophy of what the industry is, what it isn't. I've also became the chairman of the biotechnology industry organization. And I've had the great pleasure of negotiating with multiple presidents, organizations, not the presidents themselves, the White Houses, Senate, Congress, and hopefully made a big difference to as much as I can across the industry and will continue to do so. Great, Jeremy. You, you've certainly seen a lot of change across our sector during your storied career. I'm curious how the perception of this sector has changed from perhaps when you first started to now when you're engaging with various members of administrations in the White House, what difference you're seeing now? When you come from the age of dinosaurs like I do, you can remember a time when things look curious, but you don't know what the heck they are. Biotech was curious and didn't know what they are. It was full of passionate people. But the perception outside was, actually, we don't know what biotech is. And at the same time, biotech was looking at pharma and said, we don't like what we see there. So there are two perceptions, two ways. Over the years, the public perception has grown. People do understand a lot more. Large companies who were originally contemptuous of small companies have adopted many of their technologies, many of their people. And inversely, there's a healthy, invigorating flow of people from large to small, small to large. I think, however, that being said, the biotech industry is lost in the noise and disapproval that sweeps over the pharmaceutical industry in the public eye, worries about pricing, ignorance of what the real value is from biotech. Remember, 70% of all new medicines come from biotech. This is the little engine that drives. It's less than one-tenth the size of a large pharma company, but generates 70% of the actual molecules. This is remarkable. But it's not to be unexpected. But you ask me what the perception change has been. I would say to you, disappointing, because by being overshadowed by the negativity that's lashed out against the pharma companies, we're lost in that noise. We know what we're doing. With no biotech, there wouldn't have been vaccines for COVID. There wouldn't have been immuno-oncology, people surviving. And yet somehow we failed to really embed that in the minds of everybody. It's the single greatest pity. We ourselves are driven by passion, but we need to do a lot more because to be tarred with the brush of exploitation as opposed to the accolade of cure is simply wrong. Now, the other thing that has happened factually on the ground, biotech became strategic. What do I mean by that? 
Biotech was, without a shadow of a doubt, a core of the strategic assets of the United States. The investment in 1947 in the NIH led to all the technologies that we grew up in, and those technologies provided a basis for an industry, and as much more has been developed since then, to greatly have become a major, major power in biotech, the major power in the world. That has led to agriculture, it's led to cures, it's led to healthcare changes, exports, and of course, as we face COVID, the defensive capability to fight off a pandemic, albeit shamefully, and I'll say that again, albeit shamefully that we have suffered 1.2 million deaths in the nation that invented the vaccines and could have prevented many, many of those deaths that we acted to together. So it has become a strategic pillar in the nation's strength. And the real question will be, if Congress, the Senate, and the White House don't understand how to take advantage of this immense asset, we will give it up to other nations. And in the years to come, we'll find ourselves a second-class citizen in the world of innovation. Very interesting perspective, Jeremy. I'm curious, going back to your personal story for a second, as you made the switch from being a senior executive to being a CEO and sitting on the boards of various companies now, what were some of the biggest learnings you had along the way? And and think about, you know, folks that might be listening that are thinking about or aspiring to make that jump as well. I think the most important difference is the total and complete need to understand that you are utterly responsible for the success and failure of those around you. You pick the right people, you motivate them, and it's everything about people. Those people in a large company, many of them will just sail on and just do their careers. But in a small company, you better be ready to take the trash off. You better be ready to clean the dishes. And that was tough, having led 50,000 people and then going down to five wasn't easy. I found it extremely difficult. I might even say I'm probably a better CEO of a large company than a small company. But I do know one thing. I'm prepared to take the trash out. I'm prepared to be the first in and last out. And that if I can't do that, I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And you mentioned the difference between running a big company and an early stage startup. Are there certain principles from big pharma that you carry with you now and that perhaps others should consider when they're in a biotech environment now rather than you know throwing everything out? Well, I don't think they are necessarily different from the two entities. I would say to be successful, you need to demonstrate, going back to Henry Tamir's work, absolute passion, absolute commitment, absolute willingness to think differently. If you cannot do those three, then you will not be successful. You can run something, that's fine, but you won't advance it. But I think the most important aspect that you carry from a large company to a small company is that the most successful large companies have purpose. Number one, you need purpose in your small company. Number two, you need to have a team that thinks that every member of that team is as important as the other and that each wants to make the other successful. That's number two. Number three, you've got to give them the capability to be successful. You need the capital to do things. It doesn't have to be scale capital, but it does have to be capital. Unless you have a unifying thought about what you want to accomplish, 
and for whom? A medicine? A patient? What are you trying to accomplish? Because if you're not doing that, you don't think about it that in a context, you run into trouble. So there's lots to be learned from big companies. A big company that can show you how to work with other people is critical. And then you have, when I say think differently, look, Harvard is focused on epilepsy. Got a rich pipeline, rich pipeline, very rich pipeline. We think about small molecules all the way to the future when we are to conquer the blood-brain barrier. We're going to get large molecules across, and we are going to change epilepsies using genetic material. That's a little ways away, but it's coming. But in the meantime, what's the unifying thing? The unifying thing is not simply to stop seizures. It's really to cure them. Henry Tamir wasn't trying to stop the swelling of the spleen of somebody with gushes. He wanted to cure it. We need the same ambition. And Ovid has the same ambition. We want to cure epilepsies. We don't only want to stop the seizures. Not enough. Very important, but it's not enough. So you have to dream. You have to ask the big questions to do that. So I think there's a lot about that. Purpose is related to your dream. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And so, Jeremy, let's talk a little bit about now the science at Ovid Therapeutics and where your pipeline is now from a development perspective. We have a pipeline which includes phase three in the hands of Takeda right now. So Ticlostat, that will get the phase three results, which will be definitive in 2024. If that transpires, Ovid will have that is successful. Patients with Dravet and Lennox Gessa will have a whole new, completely new mechanism of action. So that's number one. It's a new mechanism of action. Looks that it's extraordinarily safe and tolerable by these patients. Data to date has been very encouraging. And what we can see is that it does seem to reduce the seizures and have a very profound effect on the disorder. Yet more to come. Now, that will be economically extremely important to Arbit. We've used the capital that we gained from some of the partnership with Takeda to invest in key differentiated mechanisms in rare diseases of the brain. The first of these is going into the clinic. This will be a, a compound which is focused on an IND coming shortly. This is all about uh, GABA mini transferase. We know that target. It's got lots of utility, lots of utility, many different areas you can go into with it in epilepsy. But what we also know about it is that in the past, people have struggled to find the right molecule. We think we've got it. And then behind that, we have a complete platform tackling excitability in the brain. That excitability is driven by the potassium chloride channel. We've got the first ever activator of KCC2. We have actually a whole library. This is a platform within a receptor. And so we're able to really tackle this with multiple indications available to us. And that's exciting. And then even beyond that, we have an exciting long-term relationship in the genes of the brain with Wendy Chung at Columbia. There we're exploring the most interesting set of capabilities now, that's all around KIF-1A, exciting area. The reason I say these are exciting is that each one of these disorders, these programs, teach you about how the brain works, excitability, how GABA works, and then in addition to that, how you transport things from down the axon from the cell body to the synapse. All of these lead to multiple understanding of different diseases. So when you look at our programs, you're not looking just at a single disease with a good molecule. Hopefully, they'll be successful. You're also looking at a door that opens up into multiple other areas of the brain. And that is why I'm excited. Because I said to you, 2014, I felt the science was opening up. 
with the imaging, with the pathways, with the animal models, with the brain mapping, what you're seeing today is exactly that. I can now tell you how much my molecule is bound in the brain. This is fantastic. What this means is that as we advance our programs, Harvard will gain a rich and deeper and deeper understanding of exactly, of exactly how to tackle not just one disease, a rare disease, but potentially another and another and another. And that's what we're aiming for. And that's what happened in immuno-oncology. You started with melanoma. You explored that. Then you went to lung cancer, breast cancer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, lymphomas. Immunology exploded because you started with what's called a sentinel disease. That's exactly what we're doing today in epilepsy, a sentinel disease which explodes the area. So that's why it's a lot of fun. Wonderful. And Jeremy, I'm curious, as you think about what growth in neurology looks like now, let's say if we fast forward 10 to 20 years from now, what are your hopes for where R&D in neurology is at that point? There's a couple, three, four things. Number one, I think that we will have tackled excitability. I think we'll have a good handle on that. Number two, we need to look at cell death and inflammation. And I believe that R&D will focus increasingly on the role of the glial cell in the brain. I also believe we will have conquered many of the aspects of getting large molecules across the blood-brain barrier. There are five big questions in doing that. Can you get a large molecule across by injecting into the vein? You better be able to do that because or orally, you've got to get it in. Number two, can you do it so that once it's in, it's going to go to a part of the brain that it needs to be? Number three, once it gets there, will it specifically transduce that in a way that's excellent and will work? Number four, can you manufacture it? This is really important. Can you manufacture it at a cost that you can do mass? So I believe within 10 years, you'll have these all laid out and they will be there. So conquering the blood-brain barrier is one getting it into these molecules in, and genetic therapies are likely to become much more frequent than they are today, if you mm. can do that. And I believe you can. I think there are ways that we're doing and that others are doing that will be successful. So five to 10 years from now, a whole new world. And with that will come abandonment of the old ideas. We've been trapped for many years in Tau, for example, many years. The incremental benefits that we've seen in some of the clinical trials, while interesting, have allowed us just to follow one thesis by opening up epilepsy, opening up inflammation, opening up cell death, etc. We really raise the possibility that new hypotheses will be brought, as they were with cancer, that will start to tackle not just on one idea. Remember, Taxol was a one-idea drug. Kill the cell. That's all. And you move away from that single kind of concept. And you go to, let's modulate the white cells so they can tackle this. It's a completely different way of thinking. That same way we tackled Alzheimer's. One way, I think that by taking orthogonal changes in science, we'll come to a much richer understanding of how Alzheimer's is and we potentially will have cures. Great. You know, we talked a little bit about the current environment and perhaps existential threats to the sector as we know it now. You're quite involved in a number of other social issues. Would love if you could talk about the Biotech Social Pact and the open letter that you co-authored some time ago. Well, this is difficult. The world has evolved. 1940s, 50s, 60s, you're a single growing economy. Business and, and social issues were divorced. That's no longer the case. We have a much more complex, integrated world. The CEO of today has multiple stakeholders, not just the shareholder. The 1960s principle that it's 
shareholder value is the only thing that matters, is no longer accurate. Why? Because everything you do is regulated by social issues. Everything you do is regulated by policy issues. You must address the environment that you're in. You need to deal with stakeholders. As a consequence of that, the role of the modern CEO is not to simply raise the stock price. If you do that, you know, you could be, a, let's say, making plastic. Cheapest, best way of making plastic is make it cheaply. Best way of making that is disposing it into the rivers. You can't do that. You shouldn't be allowed to do that, and you should go to jail to do that. That means that we have forgotten what it meant to engage with those that matter, the patients, you and me, the people in the street. And so today's involvement of the CEO requires that they address social issues because they are good for the business. Addressing social issues is critical. If you don't do that, you're abandoning a portion of your responsibilities to your employees. You're opening yourself up to social criticism by mass media. That harms your shareholders. That allows policymakers to attack you. And that also allows you to, while it, it allows, makes it certain that you will not be successful in the long run. So that's why I've been heavily involved. And it's not a, I believe that by doing this, you demonstrate that you're part of society and that is good for your shareholders, good for your employees, good for the patients that you treat. And Jeremy, great point in that, you know, it actually ties back to what you said earlier in that, you know, we need to improve public perception of biotech while during, you know, the last several decades, we paradoxically become a strategic pillar and differentiator for the U.S. And this is one of the really important ways in which leaders in this sector can do so. That is correct. That was wonderful, Jeremy. I feel like we could talk for hours. So thanks for the inspiring uh, discussion. Really appreciated it. It's my pleasure. And thank you for doing what you're doing. It's really helpful. Really appreciate your time. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.